It really doesn't take much of a rocket scientist to realize we live in a confused, chaotic, and rapidly changing world. And sometimes the chaos of the world spills over into the church. I've been uh, pastoring for several years now. The past couple of years, in a lot of ways, have been some of the most challenging. Uh, do we stop services or do we have services? Do we wear masks or not wear masks? Do we get vaccinated or not get vaccinated? And with everything going on, it becomes very easy for us as a church to lose focus on the main thing. We get so wrapped up in things that aren't quite as important that we forget that in Luke 19 and verse 10, Jesus said, I came to seek and save the lost. Jesus understood that with all the chaos and everything going on in his life, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 5, by the way, that, that Acts 11, which, or, or Luke 19 rather, was just a, a, little, a little verse to introduce us. But just like Jesus, he healed folks, he fed folks, he did miracles, he, he did lots of things, and it would have been easy for Jesus to lose his focus on what was most important. But Jesus understood that his main focus and his main purpose was to seek and save the lost. And if that is Jesus' main mission as Christians being Christ-like, should that not be our main mission as well? To seek and save those who are lost? And as we look through the book of Acts, as we've studied it here on Sunday morning, and we're almost to the end of it here, I just started it a few weeks ago with the inmates on Monday nights at the prison, and as I look through Acts, I just can't help but be struck with the laser focus that the early church had on its mission. They were all about Jesus. They, they had a lot of chaos, they had a lot of persecution, a lot of things that could have got in the way of keeping the main thing the main thing, but they didn't do that. Uh, in our text this morning, We'll point this out. Acts chapter 5, verses 12 to 42 is what we're going to be looking through this morning. But before we get there, Acts 5 is, the, the, the context really starts in Acts chapter 3. When you guys remember when Peter and John were going to temple and they ran into the fellow that uh, couldn't walk and the fellow asked for alms, and Peter and John said, we don't have any money, but what we have we give you. And in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And so the guy stood up, he praised the Lord. Well, this miracle drew a crowd, and Paul, be, or Peter being the preacher that he was, uh, we preachers, we see a crowd, we go to preaching. And so that's what Peter does, and a lot of folks come to faith in Jesus Christ. Well, the Jewish leadership hears about it, and they arrest Peter and John. And Peter and John are released from prison. The uh, religious leaders said, you all quit teaching in the name of Jesus. Peter said, should we obey God or should we obey man? In a choice between what man says and what God says, we're going to listen to what God says every time. And so... Peter and John left. They went and they told the church about it. They told them about their experience in jail and the church prayed. And they didn't pray for safety. They didn't pray for comfort. Instead, they prayed for boldness. And that prayer God answered in such a forceful way that the whole building shook. And I mentioned when, I, when we preached through this that I, 
I would like just once to be part of a prayer service when we get done, the whole building shakes. Uh, I don't know how I would react. I would like to say praise the Lord, but I might be saying it's an earthquake. You know, who knows what we would think, but just the Holy Spirit filled them and gave them boldness. And, and we talked last week how this in turn, this bold word presented a culture that the early church, they shared with one another, they the rich sold property so that the poor could have what they needed. And, and the church was together. They were unified. And, and we talked about that last week. We also talked about a couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember, they sold some land. And they said they sold it for a certain amount, but they really sold it for a lot more. And they lied to the church, and they lied before God, and God zapped them. And he killed Ananias and Sapphira right there. And it says there in Acts chapter 5 and verse 11. So great fear came upon the church and upon all who heard these things. You know, I imagine so. What happened down at Old New Hope? Well, a couple of people got struck dead. Don't you make, it would kind of make, I don't know if we ought to go down there or not. And that's kind of what we see when we get in to Acts chapter 5 verse 12, our text today. And through the hands of the apostles, and many signs and wonders were done with among all the people, and they were with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. I, so there they were, they were together, they were unified, they were doing their thing, but it says none of the rest dared join them. And I think that refers back to verses 1 through 11 of Acts chapter 5. Remember that Luke did not put the chapter divisions and the verses in. He just was writing one big long letter to his friend Theophilus. And so I think it was this fear. A lot of folks were like, man, if God's going to be that serious about sin, I'm not sure if I want to I be part of that or not. And one commentator said, this is talking about the half-hearted unbelievers. You know, those that might have been on the fence a little bit, might have been kind of curious. It kept the curious folks out. Don't you suppose if we had a church service and we advertised it in the Observer, or I put it on the Facebook page, we're going to have a service on Sunday. We're going to worship God. And oh, by the way, some folks might die. We probably wouldn't have a lot of our non-member folk here, wouldn't you imagine? Visitors probably would stay away. That's kind of the way that they were here. Even in spite of the miracles and all the things that are going on, some folks stayed away. But notice that last phrase in verse 13. Even though the rest didn't join them, the people esteemed them highly. Even though they were a little bit afraid of what was happening inside that building, the people of the neighborhood thought a lot of them. And can I, and this is not really our sermon today, but it's in the text, so I do want to mention it. As Christians, we should never go out of our way to be offensive. The gospel message sometimes is offensive. When we tell folks that the only way to the Father is through Jesus the Son and His sacrifice, that's offensive to some folks. So the message sometimes offends. But as Christians, we should have a terrific reputation in our neighborhood. If we go out into our neighborhood and, and we were to ask folks on this street, what do y'all think about Old New Hope Baptist Church? People ought to say, you know what? I don't necessarily agree with everything, but they love each other, and they seem like they love Jesus, and it seems like they, they care for one another. 
We should always have that good reputation. That is brought up several times in the book of Acts, that the church was unified and they had a good reputation among non-Christians. As a matter of fact, if you look at 1 Timothy and in Titus, and we won't look there right now, you can do this as homework if you want, uh, the qualifications of pastors and deacons, it says that they need to have a good reputation. And that's referring to reputation of those outside the church. So we, you know, sometimes we think, oh, we don't care what those non-Christians think. We should. Uh, we should be careful. I've seen some in-house fighting on, I call it Southern Baptist Twitter. There's some things going on in the Southern Baptist Convention now that got some folks all in a stir. Uh, and the way that folks are going about it on Twitter and Facebook, it's not very Christ-like. It's certainly not Christ-honoring. And it makes me wonder if non-Christians are looking, that and looking at that and saying, well, man, if they treat each other like that, what are they going to treat me like if I go? So we need to be careful. Just That's not our sermon today, but we need to be careful how what kind of reputation we have from those that are outside our, our flock because we want to win them to Jesus. And you know what? It's going to be hard to convince a non-Christian that God loves them if they think those of us in the church don't even like them. Amen? So we, we need to, to, to have that attitude of showing love. But anyway, the main thought, and we're not, I'm not going to read this text because it's a lengthy text. We'll read it as we go through it. But our sermon in a sentence today is this. When we become focused on gospel-centered ministry, we can count on two things, opposition and blessing. When we preach the gospel, when we focus on gospel-centered ministry, and that's what I want us to do here at Old Duvo, that's what we ought to be about, we can count on two things happening, opposition and blessing. When the gospel pre is preached, some people are going to be blessed, and some people are going to not be blessed, and they're going to be in opposition. So that's kind of where we're headed in the rest of our text today. First of all, the gospel ministry blesses those who humble themselves. Gospel ministry blesses those who humble themselves. Look starting at verse 14. And even though when we read in 15 that those half-hearted believers weren't coming into the church, look what's happening as a result of the gospel message in verse 14. The believers were increasingly added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on the beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter standing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Have you noticed who's getting a blessing? It's the humble. Right? The sick. The demon-possessed. The poor. They were getting blessed. They, they were humble. And when the gospel message was preached, even though there were some half-hearted folks that didn't want to have anything to do with church, when the Holy Spirit got a hold of them, they couldn't resist. And they became believers. Both believers were multiplied. Folk were being added to the church rapidly. The gospel was being preached. People were getting blessed. And, and we won't go there for time's sake, but you could jot this passage down. 
Matthew 4, 23 to 25. It talks about there how when Jesus preached, he preached to the humble and the poor and the sick and crowds just came from everywhere so that Jesus could heal them. And you know what comes after this in Matthew 5 to 7? Sermon on the Mount. Jesus preached to those that were humble. Jesus preached to those that humbled themselves. He didn't preach to the proud. He didn't preach to the religious. He preached to the humble. And if you'll compare Matthew 4, 23 to 25, to what we just read, it's almost, they can almost flip-flop. One is, is explaining what Jesus experienced, and one is explaining what these apostles and early Christians experienced. But it was the poor, they were healing, they were taking care of these folks. In order to be blessed by God's word, now listen to me, this is for us this morning. In order to be blessed by God's word, we have to humble ourselves, don't we? Pride and the gospel message are in total polar opposites of one another. If we're going to be blessed by God's word, we have to humble ourselves. Notice what's happening to the humble in verse 14. Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The humble got saved. Look what else happened in verse 15. They brought the sick out. They got healed. Verse 16. They brought the demon-possessed. The demon-possessed were set free. Did you know that's what the gospel does to us as well? When we humble ourselves and we lay ourselves at the foot of the cross, we say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. Save me. Jesus saves us from our sins, right? He heals us from the biggest iniquity that we have, and that is sin. Do you realize that there, before we become Christian, there are sin-sick people? We were sin-sick. Did you know there are Christians living sin-sick because they haven't confessed and let the Lord forgive them of those sins as well? And then also, just like the demon-possessed were free, when we humble ourselves and trust the gospel message of Jesus Christ, we're set free from our slavery. And that's the slavery of sin. Did you know become, before we became Christians, before I became a Christian, before you became a Christian, we were servants of sin? We were slaves to sin? We might not want to admit it, but that's what Scripture says. And so when we humble ourselves before Jesus, the gospel saves us, the gospel heals us, and the gospel sets us free. Well, what are some applications of this little section? First of all, I've got a question. How do you approach Jesus? Here goes a quote. Are you ready? There's no such thing as middle class Christians. You know what I mean by middle class? Those folks that they have enough money to take care of themselves. They're not rich, but they're not poor. They're middle class. There's no such thing as middle class Christians. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritual bankruptcy. We have to declare spiritual bankruptcy. I can't come to Jesus and say, Jesus, look what I'm bringing you. Look how good I am. Look how much, and I'm not talking about social middle class. 
That's where most of us would fall in, in this room this morning. That's not what I'm talking. I'm talking about spiritual middle class. When we come to Jesus Christ in humility, we come to Jesus Christ both broken. We come to Jesus Christ as a beggar. We come to Jesus Christ saying, Lord, I can't save myself. I've tried. I've tried to do it my way. I've tried to be good enough. And I can't do it. It's not working. Save me. Number two, when you think about it, sin, sickness, and demon possession, all three of those are tools of Satan, are they not? Did you know the power of Jesus Christ is healing people here and setting them free and saving them? There is no evil power of Satan that is stronger than Jesus Christ and his power. We need to understand that today. In our crazy, mixed up, on fire world, Satan causes division. Satan causes confusion. Satan causes sin. There is no power that Satan has that is stronger than Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to say that again. There is no power that Satan has that is stronger than Jesus Christ. It might not look like it, but the battle's already been won. Did you know Satan's already defeated? Satan, he did it at Calvary. We're just seeing the aftermath. And Scripture tells us that things are going to get worse before the Lord comes back. We should not be surprised as Christians. It's coming. Things are going to get worse. But there's no evil power stronger than the power and authority of Jesus. Remember the scripture that says, Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. There's a power in you as a Christ follower as a Jesus follower, that's stronger than COVID. It's stronger than our political situation. It's stronger than the division you might find at work. Where's our focus? Is our focus on Jesus? And y'all, it's not easy. Don't think for one minute I'm up here saying it's, it, all this is a piece of cake. I struggle with it. You struggle with it. But I have to know and I have to understand that just like the humble in Acts chapter 5 are saved and healed and set free, Jesus Christ does the same thing for me. Y'all, if that's not true, I don't have any other message for you. If everything about Jesus isn't true, I, I'm just, I feel the same way Paul did. We're, of all people, we're the most miserable. Trouble is, I do believe it. That's where my wagon's hitched. That's where my faith is. And even in times of discouragement, even in times of anxiety, there's always the voice in the back of my head that says, but God. That phrase, but God, has kept me going when nothing else does.
Things at work may be crazy. Things in our world may be crazy. But God is on his throne. And God heals those who humble themselves. Also, the early church didn't follow a business strategy. If I had started the early church, here's what I'd have done. I would have tried to find the most influential people in Jerusalem, and I would have tried to influence them for my cause. Because after all, if we get the doctors and the nurses and the lawyers and the bankers on our side, we can get everybody else. That's not the business model that Jesus followed. When Jesus came and picked out his 12 apostles, he picked out four fishermen. I like fishermen because I like to fish. He, he picked four fishermen. He picked a zealot. You say, what's a zealot? A zealot's one of those troublemakers that goes around in politics all the time stirring up riots. That, that's what Simon the zealot was. He picked a guy from the IRS. Y'all think you don't like the IRS? Too? That's nothing new. They didn't like tax collectors back then either. He picked a Benedict Arnold and knew he was Benedict Arnold when he picked him. And you know what? Jesus took all of these common people, these people that in any other circumstance they'd be at each other's throats. He discipled them. He saved them. He poured himself into them. When he was crucified and went back to heaven, this ragtag bunch of 12 folks and a few other disciples, 120 of them all together. Holy Spirit fell on them on the day of Pentecost. And it, it wasn't the influential people. That's a business model. You know what model that Jesus used and the church used? They used what I call the compassion model. Did you notice that before the people got saved, they were healed a lot of them? Before a lot of people were saved, the demons had to get cast out. Before the spiritual could take hold, the physical had to be taken care of. We need to remember the same thing today. There are people in Fairview, they need Jesus more than they need anything else. I don't care what a person's needs are outside of Jesus Christ. If you don't have Jesus Christ, that is your greatest need. But there are honestly people in Fairview that don't have enough to eat. There are people in Fairview that don't have clothes for their kids for school. Can't buy school supplies. There are folks in Fairview that have physical needs that need to be met. And I'm not saying that we need to go meet all of them. We can't. But I am saying this. They need Jesus more than they need this other stuff. But people won't care how much you know about Jesus until you know, until they know how much you care about them. I kind of got that tang tangled, so I'm going to say it again. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
We can tell folks about, let me tell you about Jesus. But I'm, I'm, my kids are cold. It's supposed to snow this weekend. I don't have a coat for them. God bless you. I'll be praying for you. You want to say this prayer to get saved? Now, they need Jesus, right? More than anything else, they need Jesus. But you know what? If we were to find that child a coat and say, you know what? We love you. We want to try to help. We can't meet all your needs. We're going to try to help take care of you. And when they say thank you, what an opportunity that is to say, you know what? I'm just doing this in the name of somebody that loves me, and that's Jesus. Can I tell you about him? I was talking to Rudy, uh, I guess it was Friday, about when he was going to come. And we, I said we were kind of facing challenges to uh, get into our neighborhoods because door knocking and things, people are still a little iffy about you knocking on their doors. And he said, well, have you done any neighborhood things? I said, well, we did do a uh, neighborhood giveaway. We're probably going to do another one. He said, well, why don't you try? And, and the way that they approach evangelism is they have a little tract, a gospel tract, and they approach folks and say, can I read this tract with you? And that's how they introduced Jesus. Rudy said, what if you brought people to your giveaway and just kind of wandered around and said, do you care if I talk to you and, and read this tract to you just for a minute? You're, we're already helping them, right? We're helping them meet their physical needs. What a great time to try to plug in and get their spiritual needs. Wouldn't it be cool if we could meet both at one time? Amen. Just like the man that wanted arms and got legs. In Acts 3, he thought he needed healing. He thought that was his biggest need. Peter says, no, what you need is forgiveness of your sins. What you need is salvation. The gospel blesses those who are humble. And that's where we're going to stop. We're going to, we'll finish this up next week. Because not only when you preach the gospel, two things are going to happen. Some folks are going to get blessed. Some folks are going to be in opposition. And so next week we'll look at that. And then there's a third point we'll bring out as well next week. But I'll go back to the question I started with as, as we wrap this up. And we're going to transition into communion. How do you approach Jesus? this morning is it with pride or is it with humility one of the ways I think as Christians that we are kept humble is through having communion in the Lord's Supper you know sometimes as Christians we may think we're all that in a bag of Doritos but really and truly we're not When I come before God's throne room, I don't have anything to bring him. The only reason I am saved this morning is as a result of his grace. I have news for you. The only reason you're saved this morning is because of the, his grace. That's what makes grace amazing. God saved me. And he keeps me saved. If I'd have been Jesus, I'd have gave up on Andy a long time ago. 
Because there's parts of Andy that are not very Christ-like. Andy's working on it. But by the grace of God, Paul told me in Philippians that the work Jesus Christ began in me, he'll finish in me. And when you examine yourself as Scripture tells us to do when we partake of the Lord's Supper, and you find yourself a sinner, can I encourage you this morning that God hasn't given up on you yet? Aren't you glad that the last chapter in your life hasn't been written? Aren't you glad that God is still working on you? This is part of what communion is about. Realizing the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made because none of us could save ourselves. And of all things, God sent himself so that we might be brought back to him. God loves us so much that he gave himself for us. When I talk to Muslim inmates at prison, in the prison, they have a hard time believing that God would actually die for sinful people. To them, that's an insult. Y'all, to me, that's my saving grace. It's not about what I do. Other than trusting Jesus as my Savior, all the rest of it's done by God. And it was God and the Holy Spirit that gave me the ability to answer that call that the Holy Spirit played in my heart. And he did that for you. And we get an opportunity this morning to remember that it's all about him. He blesses, gospel ministry blesses those who humble themselves.